Okay. Second Peter. You know, as we uh, as we are going through the New Testament, one of the things that I really appreciate about going book by book and line by line is the fact that it holds people accountable to the Word. You know, sometimes when we have a tendency to hear what, you know, the message is going to be, or we, we have an advance, and we have all these really neat topics we're going to bounce to, and maybe some people might say, well, I'm not into that topic, or that doesn't, you know, whatever, and we tend to want to have an excuse, maybe not to attend, or what have you, but when you go line by line through the book, through the Word of God, you realize <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> I love the way Leon says it's so simple, it hit me, it's the way God wrote it. If God wrote it that way, it should be instructed that way. You know, God never says, hey, I'm going to give you my word, and uh, since all of you like buffets anyway, you can pick and choose what you want. <clears throat> That's not what the word of God says. You know, every word of God is pure. And we need to understand that in the way it unfolds, I love the fact that Peter and Paul, even though in the book of Galatians we understand that Paul really opposed Peter to his face. And remember that? And here was the context. And the reason why I start out with this is just to let you know that, that the more I study and teach the Word of God, the more I'm absolutely convinced that as we go through the Bible repeatedly, we start understanding it's, it's a revelation not only of God, but it is the revelation of the Christian life. No wonder the Bible ends with the book of Revelation. But remember, the setting is is that in this in this early church, Peter, who, by the way, God said, or, you know, he, Christ gave him the keys to open the doors of the Gentiles and so forth. So Peter was here, and he was eating with Gentiles. Well, that's great. Because the gospel broke down that dividing wall. He's eating with the Gentiles, and, and they're probably in rich fellowship after all. It's the apostle Peter. He, li- he lived with Christ, for three years, saw things that uh, most humans uh, can only dream of seeing, and yet we went over through all that, how his life was changed. Well, here's his Peter having his fellowship, and all of a sudden, James, who was important to be a pillar of the church, and he was a, a stalwart, if you will, the church in Jerusalem and so forth, he comes in with brethren. And these brethren were Jewish brethren, Christians, but Jewish brethren. And right away, Tradition and everything sets in, and what does Peter do? He breaks off the fellowship with the Gentile Christians, and he starts migrating toward the Jewish Christians now. Is that right? No. Paul didn't rebuke him because they were they were uh, doctrinally different. Peter or Paul rebuked Peter because he was inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. He knew it, but he was acting inconsistently with it. Both men are similar in their understanding of the word. God put them in different ways. Peter to the, the, the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. And yet both start out with, you know, you look at the book of Ephesians, for example. Paul starts out for the first three chapters telling our absolute richness of Christ, our inheritance. Those first three chapters are uh, an amazement of wealth that we have in Christ. And yet the, the last three chapters, 
4, 5, and 6 are talking about that practicality of living out that life. Well, Peter, as we've gone through, and First Peter, if you remember back when we started that, he starts out talking about the elect, the sanctification, the being covered by the blood of Christ, how we have a living hope because Christ raised from the dead, and he goes on and forth. And now how he finished his uh, epistle in not only very direct language and so forth, but he also finished the fact that you Christians now, you need to mature and grow up because you are in a battlefield, you're in a warfare. And he, and he ends that note in that way. Second Peter, what we're going to see is not only a continuation of that, but this is Peter. He knows, as he's writing this, that his departure is imminent. He knows that he's got not much time left. Now, when we see that in the Timothy letters, when Paul wrote to Timothy, how he's instructing him, you know, as a new pastor, you're going to be in and out of season. You're supposed to be in and out of season, ready to preach the word, correct doctrine, and so forth. But we get into his second letter, and we see the imminent attitude that he is going to be. His life is almost over. So we see the warnings there. You look at 2 Timothy, it's full of warning that Paul warned Timothy. This is what's going to happen. In the last days, apostasy is going to set in to this professing church. You're going to have problems not only within, you're going to have problems without. You're going to have false teachers that want to have preeminence within. You're going to have false teachers that want to come in from without. Peter says the same thing. More is said about false teaching and, and why in the second letter than he ever alluded to in his first letter. But nonetheless, they both have in view of the coming apostasy, discernment, following Christ, building your life on Him, not experiences as He'll go through. He saw, He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you've ever broken that down, if you have time today, this, we, we might look at that, but if you've ever broken that down, that is amazing. He, God had allowed the scales, if you will, of His eyes to be lifted off and see Christ in His glorified state. And yet, what does Peter say? He says, yeah, we are on the mount. Me, James, and John, we're on the mount with him. But we have more sure word of prophecy. We have the word of God. So, you know, the Bible teaches all, all the way through that experiences are great, and if we have experiences, we should relish them in that. But it's not experiences that are going to get us advanced in Christian life. It's knowledge of God. It's growing in Him. It's allowing Him to live His life through us. You know, uh, and, and the greatest example of that, is, as I can think of off the top of my head, is as the Jews were coming through the wilderness. Why was it so important that God said, gather only so much man for that day and eat it? Because if you gather so much more for the next day, the next day you wake up and, and it's breathing worms and it's stinking. You cannot live, as Schofield would say, on experiences. You have to live on the sure word of God, the sure growing of, of spiritual life. So many people today have other things in their life, and they want to grow by experiences. They want to you know, have a great time. You know, oh my gosh, this morning I had such a great time in the Lord, and, and they want to feed on that, and that's great. But we cannot be stuck on some experience. We need to be in the word of God and allow it to do its work. So as we get right into this epistle, uh, he's going to tell us that this is what's appropriate for our, our growth. Everything that we need for life and godliness is right here. 
I want to start off this morning by reminding what uh, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.1. Know this also, in the last days perilous times will come. They will come in the last days. Perilous times. We know that when we, when we, you know, the last days, I believe the church has been in the last days, but the last of the last days, the Bible says that men will go from bad to worse. And that's why we must be discerning about it. In 2 Peter, the source of the apostasy is false teaching, mainly denying the redemptive truth in Jesus Christ. What do we see today? I, I, would, I could spend a couple hours up here going through documentation. I have my desk at home. I have files of documentation of leading teachers today that are saying there are more than one way to God. And they're doing it in such a deceptive way that most people don't really understand what they're saying. Unless they really, like, like myself or other people, dig into what they're saying. What's their, what's their theology all about? That's what gets most of the people in the cults nowadays. They come out with a great idea that all looks good, and before they know it, they're hooked in a situation where the underlying doctrine is, is binding, you know, and they get caught up in it, and they don't understand. Redemptive truth. What is redemptive truth? Redemptive truth is simply stating this, that there is only one way to have sins forgiven. There is only one way to everlasting life. There is only one way to live eternally in the presence of our Creator, and that's through Jesus Christ. Period. There is only one way to God. There are not many ways to God. Good works will not get you to God. A certain belief system of your own will not give you to God. The only thing that will get you to God is facts. And the fact is that Jesus Christ came and lived a life that we could not live. That's the first thing. He was sinless. You know, that's one of the big things that's coming out today in this professing church. The questioning, Christ was, how could Christ really be sinless? Wait a minute, did you know that babies are born now sinless? And, 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 uh, you know, sin comes in when they become the age of accountability and start choosing sin. Now, wait a minute. Now, that's a pretty broad thing, but now the Catholics say that Mary was sinless. I mean, Jesus led a sinless life. He had to. He was born of a virgin. That the, the seed in Mary was conceived of that of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, that, that he was divine, and yet he was perfectly divine and perfectly human. He led a sinless life so that he didn't have to prove anything. He's God. God can do whatever he wants. But he fulfilled that perfect, sinless sacrifice. That sacrifice had to be sinless and perfect. Thus, Jesus had to be born of a virgin. He walked that sinless life so he could be your perfect sacrifice. Christ lived that way so he could be my perfect sacrifice. And, and by knowing all these re things about redemptive truth, I know that God is satisfied with Christ because he was the perfect, sinless sacrifice. He was without sin until Christ 
was made sin on our behalf, and God opened up the flood dam of sin, you are my sin, heaped it on Christ, and struck him in judgment instead of you. And God was pleased with Christ dying for me by raising him from the dead. That's redemptive truth. And we'll see in this epistle how there's so much of the apostasy that time agnosticism was, was getting very prevalent during the first uh, century. Eroding away this absolute redemptive truth. You know what killed Peter, they say? He was refusing to follow the gods of Rome. He was refusing to denounce the kingship and the lordship of Christ. In other words, as Kenneth Weiss says, that Jesus Christ is the Christian's God. And by, by Peter persistently hanging on to that in front of Rome and everything else, they killed him. That's called martyrdom for your faith. Because he held to redemptive truth. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we've talked about this many times, we all must come to that decision. Either he is Lord, and he is only redemptive truth, or he's a maniac, and he's a self-deluded, egotistical maniac. Think about that. Some leaders have said audacious things, if that's a word, through the years, from Hitler to Pol Pot, you name them all, have made some outrageous and outlandish things. Is there any more than I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me? Jesus is either Lord or he's not. He's either redemptive truth and the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins and have everlasting life, or he's not. Choose you this day. Peter was also the one where Jesus said, who do the people say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some say you're one of the old prophets and on and on. Jesus said, home, who do you say that I am? When Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, what did he say? My Father revealed this to you. Not flesh and blood, my Father did because Jesus Christ is the only way. It must be the Father that reveals Christ as being the only true, honest sacrifice for sin. And that's what this, this epistle is really going to drive home. He's going to hit mockers, too. You know, if that weren't enough, people will mock, hey, if your God's real, uh, where is he? Ever since way back from the fathers, so we're going back to the flood. You know? Peter didn't say, well, you know what, I just, uh, that's just what I believe, you know. You believe what you want, but, you know, I, I kind of, no, Peter didn't say that. He says, by this same word, God said I will destroy everything. Peter says, by this same word, God's going to reserve the heavens and the earth for fire on the day of judgment. So, something happened here from a, Man who went out and whipped bitterly, bitterly in the streets of Jerusalem after denying his Lord to somebody who speaks this type of truth. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know, verses 2 and 3, God's divine provision and enablement, His power was given in salvation. But yet if you look closely, and we'll get into these in verses 5 through 7, it's our responsibility of making these virtues, or making sure that these virtues are a reality in our life. Righteousness. You know, some the uh, the original language is is so sometimes different than than what we what we look at here. And I'm I'm by no means uh, you know greater men have gone before us. That's the wonderfulness about our perfected text that we have here. But you know, Simon Peter was a bond servant. King James says a servant. Some translations say bondman. But it was what? A bondservant is one that's called and answers that call, forsakes all others. That becomes his life. That is what he is. He was an apostle called of Jesus Christ. That apostle could also be put in there. There were apostles. That was his chief office. But what an apostle was, was an ambassador. And that's what we're called to be. An ambassador for Christ. Are we an ambassador for Christ? That's what I want to know. And that's what this, this epistle is going, to, is going to bring out. We will see that in verses 6, 7, and 8. You know the illustration that that I've, has I've heard so many times. It's it's kind of redundant, but it's it's about the fruit on the tree. Obviously, the fruit doesn't say, "Well, I want to pop out and become a fruit," and you know, with all its might, does it? No, the fruit pops out because of the healthiness of the tree, the healthiness of the branches, you know, to the tree. So we're not talking about works here. We're not talking about what we do to muster up. I'm a virtuous person. We're going to look at that word virtue, and that's a different than usually what it means today. You know, he says, after he introduces himself and what he is, he's not only bondservant, he's made his choice. Jesus gave them a choice. You remember back then when, when the multitude left and followed him no more? He looked at them. Peter was one of the twelve. He looked at him and said, are you going to go away too? Are you going to go away? How can we go away you and you alone have the words of eternal life. This is the same apostle. He received that calling that he was given, and that is what he was. You and I are ambassadors for Christ. He says, look at this real closely in the middle of verse 1. To those who have obtained like precious faith, or the same kind as ours. The same kind of faith. It means a value. 
to those that have seen like precious faith, that same kind as we have, that value. Let me tell you something. Listen, think about these words. How priceless is this gift of faith which admits us, admits us, to the salvation which God has provided through the death and resurrection of His Son. This is what He means here by faith is described as like precious faith with us. It's the same kind. It's of value. It's of immense value. This has the more of value than anything. Any belief system in the world is nothing compared to the fact that God has provided a way of eternal life and Jesus is it. Like precious faith of value. By the righteousness of our God and Savior. I want to talk about righteousness, for example, you know, for a little bit. By righteousness. It's obtained only from God our Savior. Listen to what these words from Paul in Romans 3, 22. And this is explained all through his epistles. He said, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So it's something that God had planned from beginning of time. They're witnessed by his law and his prophets. But listen to this, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and upon all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Every man, every woman, every child needs something that God has. And God is willing to, to give it to them if they would come to Him through His way, and that is Christ and Christ alone. We all need righteousness. What does that mean? A right standing with God. And you don't have a right standing with God because you have sin in your life and you've not come to Christ. So therefore, you're devoid of what you have to have to stand before a holy God. And Christ on the cross said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God forsook His Son so that God could give you righteousness and forgive you of your sin. And that's redemptive truth. And that is what we lead into in this wonderful epistle. Think about this. You and I as Christians, we have what we have righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, of God Himself. Does that mean I'm holier than thou? No, that's smoke in God's nostrils, we read in the 50th chapter of Isaiah. He goes through that very clearly. To the man that goes around and claims to be holier than thou, that is not. That is not the recipient's attitude when they receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ to his account. I am no longer dead in sin. No longer do I know it, or maybe I don't know it. I am heading for judgment. Now I, I have my sins forgiven. God gives me the righteousness in my account that is of Christ himself. Now I'm full. And as we've talked about before, these false teachers will try to explain that away through works or through what have you. But does it produce life? Let's talk about that for a while. If Christ is only the is only opens the gate for salvation, but yet I must do something else, what does that do to your character? It makes your character your responsibility. 
It makes your character your goodness to achieve something. But if I have, have been brought from death into life because I was dead in sin, now I'm alive in Christ, clothed with His righteousness, good works follow as a result of that. And these false teachers will explain that away. He says, so we've, we've attained that like precious faith. I love that. We have the same faith, you and I, that the apostles had. Can you imagine that? We have the same gospel that Peter had. The same gospel that, that was used to, to turn the house of Cornelius upside down. The same gospel that Paul and Silas had that changed the Philippian jail of men. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We have that same, that's why it's called like precious, or of, of immense value, or the same kind, depending on which translation we read. But it is precious. And it comes from God, our Savior. This is so important. Our, re, our Creator that created everything must be our Savior. Must. Or the Bible falls apart. I cannot be my own Savior. I cannot atone for my sin. I cannot approach God with any merit that God would accept in and of my own. The only merit that God accepts is the righteousness that has been deposited to my account as a new creation in Christ. And this is, 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 people say, well, this is basic. This is basic, but you'd be amazed how this professing church now is twisting these truths. God, our Savior. Listen to Isaiah 43, 11. I, even I, am the Lord. You know, when God talks in that kind of language, you better listen. By the way, this, these are great uh, passages for Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and so forth. But he says, I, even I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. That is what the Bible calls emphatic language. People say, well, the Bible is interpreted, you know, you, you can interpret whatever you want, you know. And it's so contradictory. No. In the Bible, you have emphatic language. And you have language that produces no argument in the end of a reason. And I'll get to that in a minute. Emphatic language. I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. That says that I'm the Lord, and you need a Savior. And I'm it. And we're going to see as we go through this epistle how these false teachers explain that away. Paul says to Titus, is it in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested His word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. To Titus, the true Son, in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christ is both perfect man and perfect God. 
perfect man. He became, he would call himself the son of man many times. He is our representative. That's why he came. He was your mind's representative. And yet he was God, the one who created us. So now God said, come to me all ye ends of the earth and be ye saved. And false teachers will explain that away. Wow. He says, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now this knowledge, God has given us our the divine provision and enablement, the power and salvation. This is not mere knowledge of curiosity of facts. This is knowledge that one receives to be true and appropriates that to themselves. That's where the gospel saves. Many people have heard the gospel. I heard the gospel before I came to Christ. I saw it in baseball stadiums. I saw it everywhere. John 3.16, and I'm sure I heard it everywhere. This country is saturated the gospel, yet this country is headed for judgment. The gospel is historical, true facts, true words of God, which must be received as one's own. Received. Listen to what Paul says in, in Romans 5.17. He says, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So you see, before we were in death. Because by one man's offense, Adam's offense, we are all constituted sinners we were all in death. So we hear the gospel of Christ, the forgiveness of sins he offers in eternal life, but now we can get from that death position, we can be alive in Christ by receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that will reign in life. And just a few short verses here. He is, he is laying the groundwork of what redemptive truth really is. So we want to be solid in that. Not, not wavering. We want to know what the Bible says. And we are sure Jesus is mine. I am his. He is my savior. And, and you know, if we aren't confident ourselves of how to understand this truth, how are we going to be confident talking to people about it? You know, some of the worst things I've ever heard is somebody get behind a, a pulpit and, well, uh, well, you know, well, uh, you know, I, I don't, What? We need to be solid people, understand what we believe and why we believe it. That was Paul Little's reasonings for writing those two books back in the 70s, I believe. Boys, he's dead now. Know what you believe and know why you believe it. Because that's the fault of a lot of people in this church. They know why. They know that what to say, but they don't know why. And it's the appropriating of, those, of that grand truth and making it ours that saves us. It's the gift that's received. That makes it ours. That saves us. And why is he talking this way? Because he is opening understanding to false teaching and, and what we're going to see in the last days. Don't be deluded by that. Paul says the same thing in so many other places that we're to grow up in him so we, don't, we aren't swayed. We're solid people. Do you know who you believe? If Christ was coming back tonight, do you know you would go with him to be in heaven if you were to die right now? Do you know 
that you would be facing Christ as your Savior, or would you land in a place called Hades awaiting judgment? That's the answer. That's the difference between understanding redemptive truth and not understanding it, receiving it and not receiving it. It's a choice. But he says in verse 2, grace, peace be multiplied. It's multiplied in the knowledge. Remember our, our uh, scripture in Colossians uh, 1.6? We can remember it easy because we have Philippians 1.6, which is our favorite one about growth. We also have one in Colossians 1.6, written by the same apostle. It's talking about truth, about the gospel, which is laid up in heaven for us, he said, which has come to you as it has in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it has also among you since the day you heard of it and understood or knew the grace of God and truth. See, you understand, you get that knowledge and, and you make it your own. And the grace abounds and fruit starts coming out in your life. And that's what the apostle is saying here. You know, I think that's why so many people don't, don't you know, that the gospel doesn't have any effect on a lot of people because they don't see the life of, of the one Constantly talking about salvation, they don't see any fruit in their, in, in their life. He says, verse 3, he says, Divine power has given to us some things that pertain to life and godliness. Thank you. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and virtue. You know, uh, Tom McMahon and Dave Hunt wrote a book way back in the 80s called The Seduction of Christianity. And one of the things that they were, they were writing in there was, was the fact that they were, they were taking all this seduction and all this false teaching that, that was coming through the church, mainly psychology and what have you. And because we, we at the church think now that we have to get some, uh, some understanding about how, how life should run from these godless men. And we're bringing this stuff in the church. Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and other people. And, and no, the Bible says here that after we understand redemptive truth and we understand the Lord Jesus Christ and what he came to do and receiving that as, our, as a free gift of eternal life and this divine power that comes in, this is what gives us life and godliness. This is the one that points to life and is life. This is the one that has the promises and fulfills. You want to be godly? Get into the Word of God and let the Word of God get into you. You want to be godly? Let the, let the risen Christ live His life through you through the Holy Spirit. That's how you're going to become godly. Not by these self-help books. Not by these godless men that the philosophies have crept into the church. Well, you just got to go back into your inner self and go way back. You know, that's ridiculous. Jesus said, I came to give life and give it more abundantly. But again, He was preceded by what? the real reason why men are godless. Because the spiritual man that would want to be spiritual doesn't hear to that, or the man that's not spiritual and is listening to the wisdom of the world, the enemy comes in to kill, steal, and destroy. Glory and virtue. By his knowledge. You know, Peter, if he'll end this epistle... In uh, chapter 3, verse 18, he'll say, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's glory and virtue. We will share in the glory 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll share in God's glory. Yeah, that's amazing. The virtue, virtue means excellency. It means of something that is non-tarnishable. Virtue is a quality that only God can produce in the life of the believer. That's what it really means in biblical context. A lot of There's a lot of virtue in the world. There's a lot of goodness in the world. But there's only that goodness that God can produce. That Christ-likeness that will never fade away. You know, Peter says that about women. Have the quiet, gentle spirit that is precious in the eyes of God, and so forth. It's a character that God puts there, and it's a, it's a virtuous of goodness that a lot of people try to imitate, but they can't. Think about that. And it's all because we understand that Jesus Christ is the one that gives us life. There are not many roads to heaven. There is one road to heaven. There are not many voices. There is one voice. There is not many truths. There are the truth concerning God. You know, Jesus Christ, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and life, he said that I am the only way. He says that I am the only truth of God. And he says, I am the only everlasting life. You look at John chapter 17, verse 3, and Jesus spells it right out. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There is no picking or choosing. You either receive the facts and the word of God and make them your own. You receive that gift of eternal life. Or you don't. Or you make him a fraud and a liar. Are you going to stand before God someday and admit that, God, I made you a fraud and a liar all through my life? Yeah, I heard your word, but you know what? It wasn't important to me. I didn't believe it. Yes, your gift was presented to me, but I didn't want it. Peter says, in, you know, down in verse 14, he knows that he's going to leave shortly. But he wants to remind and remind and remind. And, and what that means is he's pleading. He knows his days are short. He's pleading with people. Leave off the hypocrisy. Leave off the lukewarmness. Leave off the dappling and receive the free gift of eternal life. It'll change your life. Because by receiving that gift, what is in that gift? A new life. <laughs> when you receive that gift from Christ, what's in that gift? Eternal life. It's a new life. It's righteousness. So when I receive that gift, I realize that the old sinner that's going to be judged is gone. But the new child of God who is righteousness and is going to be received by, by God is the new one in Christ Jesus. That's the gift. It's the great exchange, if you will. But it took Christ living a perfect life which you and I could not live. Everybody knows that. That doesn't escape. Everybody has some regret in their life. Everybody knows they're a sinner. You know, it doesn't take me jamming somebody in the, in the, in the face with a microphone and saying, have you ever sinned yet? Have you, ever, you know, and that's great. I'm not getting down on people that approach it that way. But everybody knows they're a sinner. The rich young ruler came running to Jesus and knelt and knew that he needed eternal life. Why did he know that? Because he knew he was a void of eternal life. He wanted to receive it. And yet he thought he was good. And Jesus said, no, no. The 
divine power has given us. Divine power. I love talking about power in the Christian life. And it's not power going, I have power. I'm going to do my own thing. No, God has power in my life, so I'm conformed to the image of Christ. You know, power brought Lazarus out of the grave. The power of Jesus' voice. That is the same voice that caused you and me to be born again. The same voice. He called you and I out of the grave of death and into life. That's the Bible. That's what's in this package or this gift to be received. I'm a dead sinner and I receive the gift of eternal life and God calls you. Don, you're not only dead, now you're alive in me because I died and took your sin and the punishment for it. And now when God looks at you, He looks at you at all the righteousness through me. You know, when God looks at you, He looks at you at all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the gift. Power. Listen to this. I love this. And we all know, I love these verses. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. He said that the God of Father of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Did you know he, you were part of you were His inheritance? He could have the whole universe as his prime inheritance. But he chose you and I, the church. But listen to this. I mean, and by the way, this is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 down. Verse 19, it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power when he raised him from the dead? There's power in that gift. It's a power to change life. It's a power of forgiven life. It's the power that said that takes us from death into life. And that same power that God called out and raised Jesus from the dead, that same power He used, and we must understand this, He used to cause you to be born again. We were dead in sin. We were dead. And we've been raised to life with Christ. Well, all things pertain to life and godliness. I don't need somebody's philosophy. I don't need somebody's understanding on how to live a Christian life. I need the Word of God to tell me. I need the Spirit to give me the power. You know, Paul says in Romans 7, he says, The things I want to do, that I don't do. Why? I don't have the power. I don't, I don't know how to do that. I want to be good, but I can't. I want to be like Christ, but I can't. No, you can't. But it's the Spirit in you. It's the power. Look at verse 4, by which we have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these, through the promises, you may be overtakers of the divine nature. having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have been redeemed out of the world. 
We've been redeemed out of that lost cesspool of sin, that condemnation. You know, we can, you know, Paul says that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because judgment fell on Christ instead of you. Paul says that grace and peace to you. Grace and peace from God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. He delivered us. That's what our God is. It's a deliverant God. Now we can start going back and we start seeing how God is all through the Bible. Our God is the way he is, but he is a delivering God. He is not a guy. He's not a probation officer. When he called Abraham, when he called Abram before he was Abraham, did he make conditional promises? No, there were unconditional promises. I will bless your name. I will make you a great nation. When he brought the children out of Egypt, the Hebrews through the sea and everything else, was that conditional? No, that was that he brought them out. We have sure we have di- different dispensations, but that doesn't take away the unconditional love of God. God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a God of promises. If he promised to keep me, he's going to keep me. If he promised to save me, he's going to save me. Because I received that gift. He's not an Indian giver. That gift does not come with a, a OPS. After opening this gift, you better walk right. Because, you know, if you don't, off the hell you go. God gives a gift. We receive that gift. And God says, I have an everlasting life for you. Oh, well, I want to be, you know, I want to be important. And I want to be... Uh, you know, respect for my friends, and I want to be one of the guys. Well, you know what? There's a lot of people in hell that thought that way, that are sitting in Hades right now, that they went home that night and got killed in a car wreck. I want to be this and that, and I want to be king of of everything, and they they get killed that night. There's millions of people sitting in Hades right now that have that regret, and they know they're waiting for judgment. Receive it now. Because through these promises, we are partakers of divine nature. What promises? God promises to forgive all of my sin. God promises that by turning to Christ, He is the one that took my punishment on the cross. And there is nothing else I can do but receive that gift. And by receiving it, I am justified in God's sight. Promise. I have the promise of eternal life. I have the promise that when I die, I don't have to worry about if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, or if I was good enough, or if I grasp, you know, I I don't have a PhD mentality. So I only grasp what God allows me to grasp through His Word. I know that Christ is my Savior. If I were to die uh, right now, I know I'd be in the presence of, of Christ. Well, that's pretty presumptuous. No, it's not, because it depends on Him. It was his merit. It was his reason why I'm in heaven. Not mine. Most people will rest on the fact, well, I've been a pretty good guy, you know, and I've done all these things. And if I were to, if I were to die right now, well, surely God wouldn't be too hard on me because, you know, for some reason I've got this silly thing in my mind that God grades on a curve. God does not grade on a curve. God is righteous, just, pure, and holy. If I have sinned, I'm a, I have a problem. I know that I've been with a family member who's been killed and was sitting in the court of law, and the guy, the guy who killed her was, was graded on a curve, and because it was a past thing, he promised to do it no more, he got a really reduced sentence. Is that justice? No. God says, you have sinned. 
And if you don't receive his gift of forgiveness, he's going to judge you on the fact that sin. And it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Wow, and we're only we're only to verse 5. Is this really what Peter's saying? Yes, that's what he's saying. That's what the Bible is saying. That's why the Bible is living and active, and people don't like it. It's, it's a fearful thing. Men have tried to burn it. Men have tried to pervert it. Men have banned it. Men have done all kinds of things to it. It still stands. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. Think about that. Great and precious promises. Exceedingly great and precious promises. Paul wrote this, one of the greatest things that just, every time I read it, I'm amazed. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those that, well, they're kind of wishy-washy, but they have God in their lives. No, prepare for those that love him. Those that have that said, God, I'm in a predicament, and I will receive your gift. Absolutely. I think it was back in the 60s, uh, one of... Uh, Billy Graham's greatest things that he was saying, I don't, I'm not too sure about the time date, don't quote me on that, but he's saying, if I had the, if I had the lifeboat, the gospel lifeboat, I'm going to save you if I can. If you're drowning out in that ocean, I have the gospel lifeboat, or you know, the gospel lifeboat to save you, I'm going to do it. And people don't. Maybe it's because a lot of us out there are hypocrites. And we don't really have an understanding of the Christian life, nor do we have an understanding of the gift that was given to us. Because as he goes on, in verse 5, with the new train of thought, he might have a bold and letter 5, or he might have some insignia stating it's, it's a, a progressive thought on this factual truth. He said, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence... You know, Kenneth Wee says about these uh, next three verses that it's our responsibility to make sure that these virtues are a reality in our life. Not that we can do them, but make sure that they're there. And Peter explains that. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. That means vigilance. That means attentiveness. That means you put aside all other pursuits and you make this your pursuit. Add to your faith virtue does not mean add to your faith like you can you can add on to your life, but it's making sure that that you have received the gift of eternal life and that God is operating in your life. And from that new standpoint out, you are a new creation of Christ Jesus. Add to your faith virtue, goodness, excellence, moral valorship, if you will. To virtue knowledge. Are you reading the Word of God? Are you growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Or you are you gaining all your other knowledge from, from an outside source? Remember, Peter ends this epistle saying he's about ready to go. He knows. And there were some of the last words he said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we have this moral excellence, this fiber of, of valor that we receive only from the Lord. To virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, or temperance. Self-control. We see a, a professing church going out of control. 
perseverance. Wow. Are we persevering through this faith? Or are we being changed? Are we, are we still holding on to that gospel which people say, now that's 2,000 years old. No, it's not. The gospel is way before Christ came. Because the gospel says that we are sinners and we must need a remedy. But that's old. We need something new. We need new revelations. Are we persevering? Sister Perseverance, godliness. Godliness. Christ-like character. Constantly molding ourselves to Him. I love that. To godliness, verse 7, brotherly kindness. The Bible says that a man's instinctive inward desire is kindness. Are we kind? To brotherly kindness, love. Brotherly kindness, love. Wow. You know, again, what, what, is, what do we see in the world today? Or charity. You know, the, you know I'm, I'm, again, I'm not harping on any, any one particular verse, if you will, or the way things put it, but the King James Version got it right. Charity. Because charity is love. But charity, it goes beyond the act of initial act of love and finding the true worth of the individual loved. You know? If I love those who love me, well, what good is it, the Bible says. But, but if I have the charitable type of love, I love somebody because they're worth something. They're worth the value that Christ died for them. They're worth. And I, in that worth and charitable, you know, we think charity now, give to charity, you know, and you help somebody out. No, charity is when you, when you yourself, you help somebody out. You, you undergird them for their benefit. And by the way, as we look at all these things, you know how we can say in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter and all that, or we see Galatians 5, and those are portraits of Christ, you know, the goodness, patience, kind, loveness, love, and all that. I want to just bring your attention to a few things. When we change, and, and the life of Christ is in us, the divine nature, and we're giving diligence to understand all these things, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, godliness, kindness, Okay, brotherly love. Listen to this. This is what God glories. He glories in this. That we would that we would understand and know him. That he is the Lord exercising what? Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. That's things God delights in. That's in Jeremiah 9:24, by example, by the way. So we see that the genuine life that of, of, that's molding the believer reflects the Creator, reflects the reality of Jesus Christ. And remember, got a few minutes here. Remember, it all starts with the receiving of the gift of eternal life, that understanding redemptive truth, understanding the gospel. Receiving it as our own. A lot of people try to be a Christian without the life in them to be one. It's impossible. People are frustrated. They, 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 I, I have had people, and so have you, that have been a Christ. Well, I used to be a Christian. It just didn't work for me. Well, unless Christ was in you, 
The hope of glory, sure, it didn't work for you. It didn't work for anybody. See, we must have the Spirit of God in us before these, the life is, is led. Boy ends with love in verse 7. Brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This simply put, this is the Christian life. And the Christian life is growth. It's not stagnation. It's not the Peter principle in business that we almost, the mostly know, that we have that form, that level of competency. And you know, in business, I've had some work for some great competent people, and you're great to have that high level of competency. But they stay there. That's what they do. And a lot of people have that principle within themselves. They get, I'm a good guy, and they get that, and they're, they're satisfied, and they go on. But it's a high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's the Christian growth. If these things are abounding in you, you'll neither be unfruitful nor barren. Like we read this morning in, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18, but the path of justice is like the shining sun. It shines ever brighter under the perfect day. I think Dan ASB says that the light of dawn, you know, which I think is a little bit more picturesque. You know, dawn comes up, brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter, brighter, boom, to the full day. That's the Christian life. Is that a reality in our life? We need to, we need to understand that. But he says in verse 9, he says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Blindness. Again, a new commandment I write to you, John says in his first epistle, which thing is true in him and in you because darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. He who says that he hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know the truth, does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You know, before, uh, years ago, before communion, um, we had an elder in a church that I grew up in that used to always uh, talk about this verse before communion, and I, and I love it. Talking about make sure of your calling and election. Because in verse 10 he says, Brethren, make, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. But if you do these things, you'll never stumble. That's what Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified or you fail the test? It's not a doctrine. Doctrines are great. 
But it's the knowledge of Christ in you, the hope of glory, that you are a new creation, that your sins are forgiven and not your Christ possession. And God sees you in Jesus Christ. And it's an atrocity when we sin because that's not who we are anymore. That's not the life we're destitute for. That's not the life of, the, of, of who we are now. Yes, we have a nature within us, but it has no power. Make sure that your calling and election are sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Make sure of God choosing you. Well, I, you know, it's not like, like our old friend Carl. Well, I sure hope I'm one of the elect. No, you know, there is no guesswork in God here. But when we make our calling election sure, we have a surety that stands on a rock. Jesus talked about this in Luke 14 and elsewhere. That a surety places upon the rock. And upon that rock, no matter what happens, you might not fall. And I'll end, I'll end here. In verse 11, I'll end verse 12, it says, For an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You and I, my friends, that have received that gift and we're in Christ Jesus and, and we are being changed by Him. Do you know what's awaiting you? An abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. That is amazing. Anybody who can sleep through this, anybody who can give this a oh, hum, something is wrong. Because by being Christ's own and by being His possession, and He is, is, is causing fruit and growth in your life. And you know that the outcome is because so he can welcome you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, now as you've always obeyed, not so much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whoa, wait a minute. This is what they call a double-edged sort of a truth. If we stop there, we'd go, wow, work out? You, know, you mean i got to work out my salvation? But then he goes on to say, for it is God who works in you, both to will and do in his good pleasure. That is such a balance of the Christian life that we're talking about here. Or as Kenneth Weiss was talking about, that God provides provision and the power and the salvation, but it's our responsibility to make sure that the, that, that the growth is happening in our life. We're seeing the growth and uh, you, you're just excited about it. Or we're fan out, as it as it is the more uh, laxo way of saying this, apparently. I think the NIV or system now, I'm not too sure. But, you know, therefore, we've loved, we've always obeyed in my presence. You know, you're good and attentive, but much more in my absence. Work out. Fan out this the salvation with fear and trembling that's in you. Allow it to come out. If you're so worried about your life and the things in your life, you are definitely not going to be fanning out and allowing that to spring forward with what's with what's in you. And you've lost these things. You're blind and you're not, you don't realize that you've been purged from your former sins. A lot of people get the wrong understanding of 1 John because they read 1 John as something other than what it was written to. It's written to Christians. And if we and if saying, wait a minute, so if we confess uh, in 1 John 1, 9, 
I already did that in salvation. No, we're talking about Christians stumble into sin. They come immediately to God and they confess their sins. That joyous fellowship is restored. And we know that we're forgiven, that we're sons of God because of Christ on the cross. But I have acted and I walked in a way that is not bringing glory to God, goodness to me by the fruit, and glory to his name by the fruit that other people see. So therefore we have an avenue to come to God. Keep short, short accounts with God and that fellowship keeps flowing. But it's our responsibility to know the, the facts, to receive the word of God, to receive that gift of eternal life, and we will see amazing results. Wouldn't you think it was weird that somebody says, oh, I've been in Christ 25 years, and he's living worse than your neighbor that doesn't even know God next door? Something's wrong here. <laughs> I want us all to be able to look back and see growth. That we've grown not only in the Word of God, but we've grown in the character of God. We are wasting our time here if all we're learning here is doctrine. But when we learn doctrine surrounded by the love of Christ, we know our Savior. Do you know the voice of Jesus Christ versus the voice of a false teacher or a wolf? Well, let me tell you. Far be it from me to want to be insinuous about the truth. But let me, let me ask you something in closing. How about if somebody came to you and said, you know, man, I couldn't believe yesterday I had such a great experience with God. I was in, I was in fellowship and prayer. And you know what Jesus said to me? He came back and he comforted me. He said, you know, child, he said, I need you a lot more than you need me. It was wonderful. That's what Sarah Young does in her book, Jesus Calling, amongst many other things. And I'm not picking on her or her book. What I'm saying is that there are false prophets, there are false things coming in, there are everywhere that are saying, I've heard from God. Really? God needs me a lot more than I need Him? Better fear God now. You're going to love Him to love Him. But He is the God of creation. And He has the right to do what He wants to do. If he wanted to wipe everything out and start fresh, that was his right to do it. If he wanted to stop with, 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 the, with the Israelites in the, in, the, in the desert, Sam, done. He could have done it. He could have, eons past, knowing all things, says, you know what? I don't want to see my son falsely condemned. I don't want to see people hating him. I don't want to see my son being beaten like that. Think about your sons or your daughters. Would you want to see them treated like that? I wouldn't want to see anybody pull out my son's beard and whip him senseless and beat him. And then, knowing that he was going to go to the cross to bear the sin of the world, you talk about a load that is born patiently. That's how much God loves us. No, we need Him. 
We need Him. He's the one that we live or die by. We all live on that razor's edge between life and death. People that don't, they're deluded. Oh, I got many, I, you know. Yeah, we, we love all to live for retirement age or whatever, but you know what? That's just not a fact. I've lost two really good friends out of high school, right out of high school. I lost another one, 23 years old. Life is no guarantee. But that's what the world says. Oh, you have plenty of time. It is the truth to be received. It is truth to be believed. It's the truth that, that you can see that growth only comes from Him. Are there any, are there any questions before we close? This is truth that needs to be communicated today. This is the perseverance that Peter's talking about in verse 6 and just the Christian life. Are we going to preserve? Are we going to uh, carry on? Because if you follow that line of truth all through the Bible, and I promise I will close with this. I'm sorry, folks. This is exciting and this is important. One of my favorite... Thank you. One of my favorite verses or uh, Psalms is Psalm 37. You know, there's all type of things in there. But you know, God <coughs> keeps us and preserves us. And in, in Psalm 37 verse 28, it says, The Lord loves justice. He loves justice. Justice happened on the cross for you and I. Did you realize that? God vindicated his justice when Jesus was on the cross taking punishment for our sin. That's what sin demands, punishment. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. And you follow that word preserve through the Bible and you will understand it comes directly linked with a keeping God that once he... He is a saving God. He saves us not only from our sins, He saves out of trouble, He saves from evil, but He saves from wrath. And that's this is going to be distinguishable behind all the people that are, that are in Christ Jesus versus the world that's heading to Armageddon. Wrath is God's avenue alone. And that wrath passed for me and went on Christ in judgment. And by receiving that, we have entered into new life. Those of you that are listening, if there's any listening today that have not received Christ, you heard this. You heard the gospel. That Christ came into the world for you. He, he was nailed on a cross for you. Those words in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, were said for you. He took your punishment. He rose three days later as proof that that sacrifice could save you if you put your trust in Him and Him alone. Not your works, not your merit, not anything. God does not grade our curve. God is just. And without Christ, you're going to be condemned. You're going to stand before God one day and you're going to give a reason why you have rejected that. 
why you could have had the Savior, but now you have the judge. And the judge is right, and he's holy, and he's true. You know, it's one thing, if I get a traffic ticket, I might be able to bribe my way out, or I might be able to go and say, well, judge, yeah, but you know, I, my wife was having a baby, and I had to break the law, and I had to, you know, one way or the other. But when we stand before God, and you're still in your sins, there is going to be no explaining things away. God will judge rightly, and he will judge fairly. And all the world of the redeemed will watch as you turn around slowly and you walk into outer darkness with his weeping and gnashing teeth. That's how much God loves you. So for a false prophet to say that, that God needs me more than I need him is nonsense. Cam, will you pray, please? Thank you, our Father, our Creator, and our Redeemer. You have given us so many promises. That's the, that's the nature of scriptures. Mm. One promise after another. Mm-hmm. You're faithful to each and every one of them that you have reduced to writing. We thank you for all of them and pray that we'll depend more and more on each of them as we live our lives. Mm. We thank you in the name of Christ our Savior. of my life. He has access to every fiber of my being. That includes my thought life. Make that decision now. So when temptation comes, your decision has already been made. I am Christ. He is mine. I am not going to submit to the things of the world. I've already submitted myself to Christ. My heart is already in his hand. My treasure is already with him. He is my life. Do it now. So when the temptation comes, you're not fighting to try to find a a decision, or you're not fighting to try to get that sudden strength. You know, I remember on, on one particular situation somebody was accustomed to searching the internet and well after you do that is all you know you have they you have a tendency to whatever you go on the most it'll either pop up or something like that well he had been in and this particular individual had had succumbed to pornography and all that before and, and just, just sites that he shouldn't have been on we made that decision and unfortunately, he still had that same computer and stuff like that. So when things would pop up, that decision was made. They didn't pop up and he have to go, oh, you know, and try to find a certain strength that he does not have. He has to try to find a quick solution because temptation comes upon a man like that. You don't have time. Do it now. So when the temptation comes in, you don't worry about time. The decision has been made. And let me tell you what, Jesus will not rule somebody who does not want him to. People say, wow, really? Yes, really. That is one of the evils of Calvinism and other things. God will exalt a man who is lowly and contrite and humble of heart that trembles at his word 
They know that he's the high and lofty one. We've made that decision that, oh Lord, my God, you are my king and my God. All I have is yours. My decision has been made. And now when temptations come, you know what? Blow as they will. It's the way it is. You know, the Bible says that a, a righteous man falling down before the wicked is like, a, is like a muddied stream, a polluted well. And that's why. Spiritual warfare. Your enemy is out there. But look at this. Verse 10, but, he, but may the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, <coughs> you have suffered a little while. This is the end. He will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Make that decision now, my friends. Look at that. After you suffer a little while, this is a promise of God. He's going to perfect you. He's going to establish you. He's going to strengthen you, and he's going to settle you. Some of us in our Christian life are stilted, and we, should, we aren't advanced as we should be because we're flirting with temptation. We've not made that decision. We're lukewarm. We don't know if, if, if really what we want to do. Some of you need to wrestle with God now. Even as, ja even as Jacob did. He says, I'm not going to let go of you until I receive a blessing. We need, to, we need to wrestle with ourselves and say, I'm not going to let go until I know that Christ is mine and I am His and He is welcome into any avenue of my being. Is He welcome into your thought life? Is He welcome into your time off? Is He welcome into your home when nobody else is around and nobody sees you? You should be welcome everywhere because we're His. We've been bought with a price. He's going to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And why? The outcome is always going to be for our good and His glory. Look at verse 11. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus and faith, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying. Look at this. That this is the true grace of God in which you stand. This is it. You know, one, one thing I love, if, ah, it's just amazing. I'm almost done. Thank you for hanging in here. This is, uh, I hope this has been instructive. Um, again, pastors are restricted by time, which, which uh, always runs contrary to me. But Paul says this about the gospel. Remember at the beginning, we're talking about the gospel. The gospel saves us, puts us on that foundation. Gives us a, a complete forgiveness of sins, a place with Christ in the heavenly realms, and we're, and we're, we're seated, and now we're to grow. Paul says this about the gospel. He says, The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are saved. So you stand on this gospel. This is the foundation of your Christian life. You're saved by the gospel of Christ. Now we get Peter who started out his epistle talking about not only have we been uh, elect, not only talking about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ and the sanctification of the Spirit, but that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as, as Paul says in Ephesians, 
Peter says it in another way that we've been blessed by the living hope to Christ to raise us from the dead and so on and so forth. He ends this epistle as Paul ended 1 Corinthians by saying, this gospel I preached to you is the gospel in which you stand. Peter is explaining the gospel, explaining what it entails. Yes, we've been saved from our sin. Now we're Christians. We're, we're born ones of Christ. Now we're growing. And he, say, he goes through all this, which includes spiritual warfare. And he says, this is the true grace of God in which you stand. It's the all-inclusive gospel. It's the, it's the shedding of the blood of Christ. It's the going in the tomb. It's raising in the third day. It's ascending to the Father who is, who is at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us. It's the Holy Spirit coming down. It's the where we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And everything we do, we do with the hope of Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and so on and so forth. And now, not only correct understanding of where we're to be and what we're to do and our enemy around here, He's saying all this is included in the grace of God by which you stand. And he closes by saying, She who is in Babylon elect together with you greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ Jesus. And my friends, he ends this by saying we need to greet one another with a kiss of love. You know, the Bible says in the second psalm, and I love the way that King James put this, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. You know, that is a term of affection. Are we affectionately love for one another? Because that's what's going to keep us walking with Christ, is love. Make up your mind now. Follow him now. Fully. Because as Peter said, he was zealous on saying these things and bringing these things to reminder because Jesus had told him shortly he's going to go away. Paul says the same thing. He says the same, say the same thing as to you as me, not tedious, but to you it's profitable. Oh, it's just another sermon. It's just another this. It's just another that. No, it's an admonition to follow Christ today. Make that decision today. Father, I just thank you for this epistle. Lord, I just pray that you take away the rough edges that I put there and that the pure word would plant itself deep within our heart, that we would realize that the love of God knows no bounds, and yet we need to understand that there's an adversary out there. The one that wants to destroy us. That is bent on doing what he can in these last days. It's going to get worse. And I pray we would be solidified. We'd be ready. That we'd love one another. If it gets worse in these days to come. And we're parted from one another. We don't have a place to come so comfortably like most parts of the world. I pray that we would ask ourselves, will we be able to stand? Will we be able to stay strong and say, come Lord Jesus? 
Father, I pray that we'd be ready. We'd be ready, Lord, for your coming. And I pray as the Apostle John says, Come, Lord Jesus. And Father, in his name I pray. Amen. Amen.